I pray that the words of my mouth uh, might be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, hopefully by now you are all aware that August has been Vision Month. As we've looked at deepening our understanding of becoming a church known for its relationships. In the first week, uh, we focused on our relationship with God. In the second week, we focused on our relationship with each other as church. Last week, Dale preached on mobilizing our vision through connect and grow and serve. And this week, I'll be focusing on our relationship with the community and those outside the church. If you do have your Bibles or smartphones with a Bible app with you, uh, so you know where I'll be going today, we'll be focusing on the passage, passage from Ephesians um, with a little bit of 1 Kings. It is, though, before we get into it, worth reminding ourselves of the importance of the relationship flow of our vision. The order matters. We seek first the kingdom of God. The greatest commandment is that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. And this is our first priority. Secondly, we deepen our understanding of God and are held accountable to our priority of seeking first and discern gifts and talents that we are called to invest in building God's kingdom by belonging and being actively involved in church community. Here we find that we have value and our talents have extraordinary value when used to seek first the kingdom. Lastly, we are called to use our knowledge of God and our knowledge of self not to make ourselves feel warm and fuzzy, either individually or collectively, but the gospel imperative is to make Jesus known to the world. The result of a relationship with God, the result of a relationship with church, is others know who Jesus is. Not just the idea of Jesus or the historical figure of Jesus, but the real Jesus who lived, died and rose again, not just for you and me, but also for those who do not yet realise it the way that Jesus planned for them to come to that realisation is for you and me to show them. When we get that order right, we're healthy. The church is healthy. More people come to know about Jesus and the church grows. I passionately believe that growth is the natural and intended state of church life. But when we get the order wrong, leave out elements or start focusing on ourselves or other interests other than the kingdom of God, then the outcome is dysfunction. We stagnate and decline because what people are seeing when they look at the church and they look at Christians is that it doesn't look like Jesus. Mahatma Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your, Christ, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Sadly, 
there are many current examples of the public not seeing Christ in the actions of Christians or the church. I'm always um, reluctant to go anywhere near politics in a sermon. And uh, you will never hear me being party political from the pulpit. It's a promise that I made when I began ministry. But given the events of the last week, I think there's something we can allegorically learn from what has happened. I don't know all the ins and outs, only what has been reported. But it seems to me there's been a general loss of public confidence in our politicians. Now I do pray that that is rebuilt because every nation needs good, strong, stable government and I pray that that is God-inspired. But in my summation, the loss of confidence can be traced back to the same relationship principles that I've been talking about for the last month. There did not seem to be a seeking first of the principles for which they stood for or were identified by. And there seemed to be disagreement as to what those principles were and competing agendas developed and the ability to work together, hold each other accountable and focus on the important things was compromised. As a result, the ability to connect with the public and be trusted by them has been lessened. I use that not to make fun of what's going on, um, although there's been plenty of interesting things floating around social media, but really just to remind us that when we get our relationships out of kilter, it impacts those around us and can be a wide-ranging impact. Anyway, back to the Bible. I'm going to have a look at uh, 1 Kings very, very briefly. We talked about the temple a few, a few weeks ago when I preached on the book of Haggai. And I gave you a very quick history of the temple through the ages. And the point where um, Graham picked it up uh, this morning, we've sort of gone back to the future. Um, and the temple that David wasn't allowed to build, Solomon has now built. And what Graham read was part of Solomon's prayer of dedication for the first temple. I want to draw your attention to the last part of what he read. And I'll read it through with you. And if you've got your Bibles, you might like to read along from the translation that you have. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a distant land because of your name, For they shall hear of your great name, your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When a foreigner comes and prays towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the foreigner calls to you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And so that they may know that your name has been invoked on this house that I have built. Final words of the dedication of the temple by Solomon. 
were to remind the people, and I'm sure to remind Solomon, that this temple was not to be a self-serving building to make Israel great again. It wasn't for their comfort and their affirmation. The reason that ancient Israel existed was for the sole purpose of making God known to the whole world. Now, Israel, as we read our Bibles through the Old Testament, didn't get that right. And you don't have to to read too much further to know that Solomon doesn't always get it right either. But that doesn't negate the purpose to make God known to the nations. God promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17 that he would be an ancestor to a multiple, a multitude of nations. Throughout the history of the people of Israel, they were reminded what it was like when they were held captive as slaves in Egypt and they were not to treat others from other parts of the world the way that they'd been treated. And when Israel became too self-absorbed or dysfunctional, then the prophets came and called them back to this macro vision of making God known to the world. Yes, they were chosen, but they were chosen for the purpose of making God known for the world. And likewise, the sole purpose of the church, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the sole purpose is to make Jesus known to the whole world. My salvation, while it does indeed benefit me, is ultimately for the benefit of others. I want to jump now to the book of Ephesians and to see how this can practically work. It's all right in theory, but how do we actually live this out? In Ephesians, in the early chapters uh, that we've been hearing uh, over the last few weeks, Paul has made some pretty amazing claims. God unites everything in the universe through Christ and put everything under God's authority. God has created a new humanity out of old animosities. We are chosen by God and have not only been raised up through Christ, but we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We can all say a big woohoo. We're the winners. Sounds like we don't need to worry. We don't need to struggle. We don't need to worry about anything. Well, of course, if you actually read the rest of Ephesians, we know that that's not what Paul's talking about. And also, we know through lived daily experience that there is continued struggle. There is evil to overcome. And before we get to chapter 6, Ephesians has been clear that evil spiritual forces, though defeated, are still active. God's victory can't be snatched away, but the enemies have not surrendered yet. Paul is enlisting and equipping the church to stand on God's side in the continuing conflict. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, hang on a minute, I'm not sure I like what they're saying here. I, I thought Stuart had picked something with a little bit more 
soft and gentle. I really don't want to be one of those Bible-bashing thugs. Well, as we look through this passage together, yes, we're going to find that it has been misinterpreted and misused. But we're also going to find that it's got nothing to do with aggressive, militant Christianity or Bible bashing. But it's got everything to do with how we make Jesus known in the relationships we have outside of the church. It is very true that the church, too often throughout history, has aligned itself with various empires and military forces. Church history contains too many examples of crusades and blessing armies and weapons intended to annihilate other members of God's creation. Uh, I know a few of you have had the privilege, like I have, of seeing um, the brand new documentary that's been released uh, this year uh, from the Centre for Public Christianity, uh, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. Um, it is, it's brilliant. And I'm sure um, in the coming months we'll, we'll look at uh, hosting a screening here in the church. And so brilliantly explores about how the church has, throughout the ages, uh, failed, but also balances it with how it succeeded. The imagery that Paul uses can be a little bit confronting to us in 2018, but also it's confronting because it's foreign. But what Paul is doing is he's looking around the world that he lives and the communities to which uh, the church is, is planted and is growing. And he's asked himself, what is the symbol of the ultimate power that people think is in existence? And he picks himself a Roman centurion. I had a little bit of think after I, I finished my sermon last night. And I thought, I wonder if Paul was writing today and looked around the world in which we live, what would be the symbol of the ultimate power that the world sees today? And I couldn't come up with an, a, uh, an easy answer uh, for that. So maybe it's something you can take over and uh, let me know what you think after, after the service. But he takes this symbol of a Roman centurion, which is a symbol of power and authority in the world in which he lives, and he contrasts it with the actual ultimate symbol of power, God at work in and through the church. For us, the battle imagery can seem a little bit hard and foreign and countercultural for us. But hopefully it can also help us to remember not to be complacent or ignore the daily reality of evil. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, if you've got it handy, we're told to put on the armour of God. And back earlier in chapter 4, uh, Paul says that we're also using the same word, the same verb, put on a new self that God's created and given to us in Christ. So basically what Paul is saying is we're called to put into practice the new identity created through Christ. 
We've been singing, um, and singing very well in this service. I've got to say, um, who you say I am. Our identity is we are a child of God. That's what we put on each day. God wins victory in ways that are not our ways by bringing peace through Jesus' death on the cross. And it's somewhat paradoxical that the armour, sort of that symbol of battle and, and aggression, is used to describe for Paul to mobilise the church to do anything that prepares them to proclaim peace. So rather than um, advocating for uh, military might, this passage is doing the complete opposite. Dressing ourselves in, in a suit of armour could automatically create an image of an individual preparing for solitary combat, sort of like a big MMA tournament um, coming up. It's not like that at all because Paul, I know you weren't expecting a, an English lesson today, but you're going to get a little bit of one. Paul uses verbs and pronouns um, that are not singular but plural. The you in this passage is you plural. Evil is resisted by the church's life together. The church stands against the wiles of the devil. And it does it by its love and reconciliation, by peace and righteousness, for which it longs and works in the world and within its own fellowship and by mutual prayer and proclamation. The opening instruction in verse 10 is simply be strong. But again, if we look at the verb, it's a passive verb, a reminder that we are to be strengthened by God and not by our identity given to us by anybody else other than God. God is the source of our identity and the source of our strength. And we do that by living with love and peace towards one another, singing hymns to God, speaking truth and forgiving one another, reflecting Christ in our homes and our closest relationships. See, we're not taking arms up against anybody. We're living away makes Jesus known. And this standing firm that is picked up again in, in verse 13 is not something that we can do by ourselves, but only as community. The instruction to be strengthened is also a present tense verb, which emphasises that the continuing nature of this strengthening is not something that you all experience just in one moment and then you move on to something else, but part of an ongoing life of the church together. It's something with which we are never finished. But it points to the lifelong habit of trusting God and finding life, love and strength there. Now, 
I don't know who it was, but somebody must have um, snuck into the gym while I was there and, and took this photo of me doing, uh, doing curls. Can't you tell? <laughs> but when you, I mean, if, if we know this. It, it, it's it's, it's the, the, the anatomy of, of, of exercise and strength that when you exercise, you build strength. And if you don't exercise, you lose that strength. And Paul reminds us that the exercise of our commission to make Jesus known is a lifelong commission and requires regular exercise and attention. But our source is not a barbell or our own muscles. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Because in the end, only God can and will finally overcome the forces of evil. But in the meantime, the church already is the sign and promise of, God, of what God will do for the world through Christ. Just think about that for, for the moment. We are already the sign and the promise of what God is doing through Christ. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But are we living like we are the sign? Is Paul's challenge to the Ephesians. And I suspect the challenge that we're facing this morning. We've been enlisted as believers of Jesus into this mission. And we can respond boldly only because God has already set us free. There's no need to fear at whatever challenges we're faced with in our time or in the times to come. We have been given all that we need to stand strong against anything that opposes God's peace. So to be clear, our mission is to make Jesus known to the world. And that's why we need to focus on the relationships we have and the relationships we can build with those outside of the church. Rather than banging them on the heads with our Bibles or standing screaming at them on the street corners, we are called to approach these relationships with truth and righteousness. The words and the actions that speak from us are words and actions that promote peace. My physio um, said something to me uh, really profound the other day. And we were talking about how to interpret some of what St. Paul says, especially the harsh bits, as you do when you're lying on your physio's table. Um, maybe that's just me. Um, he said, when Paul is harshest and most judgmental is when he's speaking to Christians. And he does preach judgment. But when Paul was talking about those outside the church and talking to those outside the church, the dominant message was grace. After I thought about that, I, I realised how profound that was. And I did think about inviting him to come and preach. Instead, I thought I'd just pinch his idea. Paul knows how hard it is to speak grace and peace in a hostile world because that was the world that he was living in. 
But that's why we're called to rely on our faith, the assurance of our salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, but no means least, we're called to pray. Every church that I know of that has had lasting growth and has been able to demonstrate they've been able to make Jesus known to those outside of the church is identifiably powered by prayer. Prayer for each other and prayer for those who are yet to realise that freedom is found in Jesus. We're called to pray. Of course, one of the first prayers that we, we go to is praying for ourselves. And I know it seems like a big task to go out into the world and into Rabina Town Centre after, um, after the service and I'm there to have lunch or my cup of coffee, but Stuart said I need to make Jesus known. What do I do? And do I, do I, I just turn to the person at the table next to me and say, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Would you like to come to my church? This is not what Paul's saying at all. Paul is asking us to order our lives in a way that reflects love. There's some amazing words that I don't think St. Francis actually said, but they're attributed to St. Francis that says, preach wherever you go and if necessary, use words. And it's not about Bible thuggery. It's not about confronting people and saying, you're going to hell until you change your ways. It's living like you believe you're a child of God. And being bold enough to demonstrate that in all its frailty and all the times that you get it wrong to the people outside this church. I wonder if Gandhi would have used those words that he did if the Christian church had understood this passage better than it has historically. A church known for its relationships seeks first the kingdom of God as its first and only priority. It deepens our understanding of God. It's held accountable to our priority of seeking first and discerns the gifts and talents that we're called to invest in in building God's kingdom. And lastly, a church known for its relationships makes Jesus known by living lives of truth and righteousness, promoting peace with our words and our actions, and to rest in our faith, salvation, and the power of the Holy Spirit. To actively pray this vision into existence. I wonder if you're ready to be part of this type of church. I know it won't be easy. But I wonder if you're ready to risk the present for the future. Because I'm ready to lead us in that direction. Because I know that this is the way that God has called us. Are we ready to be led by God and to see where God will take us? Because I know that it's going to be far more exciting than anything that we could dream up ourselves.
God, I pray. Lord God, you call us to relationships and to be known by them. As we wrestle with your promises, but also your desire for us to promote who you are in the world, might we know that we do it together in your power. And all we need to do is to start to live like we are your children. Amen. We continue to be led in a time of prayer. Thanks, Bruno.